Well, good evening, church. My name is Neil, and Pastor Skip sends you all his love. In just a few moments, I'm going to be introducing our guest teacher for this evening, but if any of you have been following Mrs. Lenya's posts on Instagram, you know that uh, Pastor Skip, is, uh, he's addressing some medical issues that had come up, and he's simply getting some much-needed and well-deserved rest. Yes. Let him hear your applause, because I'm certain he's tuning in right now. Good. Good. So we assured him, hey, we're all supporting you for the rest that you need. Please take that rest. His plan and our expectation is that he's going to be back very soon in the pulpit, just as normal, probably even better than normal. But until then, giving him that rest, uh, he has left you in very capable hands this evening. And so tonight, you're going to receive a message from our very own Taylor Bronitz. He's our pastor over Spectrum Middle School and High School. And I've had the privilege of watching this man grow up into the godly man that he is from childhood. And I can tell you, Pastor Skip and those of us uh, who've gotten to know him better and better over the years are so impressed, not only by the gifting God's given him, but perhaps even more so by his character and his commitment to Christ, and to his family, and to you as a body. So without any further ado, let me remind you that if you want to get any more updates on Pastor Skip, you can follow Lenya at at Lenya Heitzig. That's her handle on Instagram. And uh, just please keep Pastor Skip in prayer. And with that, would you please welcome Taylor Bronitz. Good evening, Calvary Church. How are you doing tonight? Well, as, uh, as Pastor Neil uh, lets you know, of course, I am not Skip. Probably your first clue was the rather dramatic height difference. <laughs> kind of a short guy. Um, but although Pastor Skip is, of course, not with us tonight, I'm still extremely glad that you are here tonight. Um, there are lots of places that you could be tonight. There are lots of things that you could be doing, but you chose to come and be a part of this Calvary family. I'm so excited that that makes me happy that you're here, that we get to open God's word together. And can we just all agree just for a moment how blessed we are just to go to a church like Calvary? Can we just agree to that? I mean, where else do we get to gather every week without fail? We get to experience incredible worship from Battle Drums. We get to sit under world-class Bible teaching. We're truly blessed to be a part of a church like Calvary. Amen? Amen. So Calvary Church isn't just where I get to work. This really is my church. Uh, This is the church that my wife, Savannah, and I, we have chosen to put down roots and to raise our three children here. This is our church. And even beyond that, this is our family. Like, you are our family. And because this is family, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you were doing before church. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter uh, what neighborhood you live in. We're just glad that we can gather together as a family. We love each other. We're gathered around the grace of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So as part of my role, I also have the privilege of leading up Spectrum Student Ministries. And Spectrum, if you don't know, that is our middle school and our high school ministry. We meet every week, every Thursday night at 7 p.m. in the hub, the building right behind me. And it's incredible. And I've grown up in this church. I really have. I've spent the vast majority of my life at this church. Long before I was ever a leader in Spectrum, long before I was ever the pastor of Spectrum, um, I was a student. And I've been a part of youth ministry here at Calvary for a really long time. And I want to tell you this, and I know I am biased, but 
God is doing something in Spectrum. God's doing something, and, and he's doing something in the lives of Albuquerque's youth, and it's honestly something I've never seen before. I've never seen what God is doing now. I've never seen that before. And I've been a part of this ministry for a long time. Something is different. Something is different. Week in, week out, we see sixth graders to 12th graders come every week. They are excited to worship, to open God's word. And what I love more than anything is that they truly, they truly embody what it means to have Christ-centered community. It's incredible. And can we all agree that what I think what we need in this country more than just, yes, good policies are great, good politicians are good, but beyond that, I think what we need in this country more than anything is revival, amen? And that's what I'm praying for in 2020, that we would see revival, not just in our city, not just in our state, but over the entire nation. And historically in this country, when we look at it, there's generally been some type of revival, usually once a generation. And if this pattern holds and if the Lord continues to tarry, it would actually mean that we're a little overdue for a revival. And I'm a millennial, if you couldn't already guess. Um, Sociologists generally define millennials were the generation born from around 1982 to 1996. I'm on the younger end. I'm 26. I was born in 1993. Um, But the young people of today, today's youth, aren't even millennials anymore. So when we talk about young people, we're not even talking about my generation as millennials. We're talking about Generation Z. Uh, or Gen Z, which is what we typically refer to it as. But Gen Z, this is where sociologists define as a generation born after my generation from around 1997 through 2010. And overall, when I, when I think about it, when I'm honest, I look at so many people in my generation, my millennial generation, I think that for a lot of us, I think we missed out on revival when, when we were young. I look back to the time that the people that I grew up with sitting in chairs, the people I used to sit in chairs with in velocity and vertical, and all I can do is honestly just grieve because I, I, I think about how many have just not only walked away from church, that's one thing, but they have just completely walked away from Jesus altogether, and that, that breaks my heart. In Matthew 13, as you know, Jesus shares with us the parable of the sower, and one of the different types of soils that he, he describes is the soil where it, like the seed is thrown out. It's received, but very quickly the cares of this world and just the cares of this life very quickly choke out the seed. It never takes root. And, and I think that's what's happened for a lot of people in my generation. I know that certainly happened for me for seasons. But while I think you, you could probably argue that many in my generation, I think we probably missed that opportunity for revival I don't think that's the same for Gen Z. Every week, I see youth who are gathered together every week who worship passionately, who are hungry for Bible teaching. And I truly believe that God is doing something special in this generation that I have never seen before. I see a unique hunger, a unique passion, a unique just desire to follow Jesus. I've never seen it before. And I'm not just saying that because I'm paid to say that. I'm saying that because I believe it. So while it's easy to be pessimistic, there's lots in this world to be pessimistic about. We can be pessimistic about the direction that our country seems to be going in. We can be pessimistic about the, the direction, the, the kind of trends that our culture seems to be going in. I'm here to tell you that there's at least one thing you can be optimistic about, and that is our youth. That is our youth. God is doing something big right now, and I truly, truly, truly believe that God is going to change the world, and I believe that Gen Z, our youth, are going to lead that charge. I believe that. And we're blessed to be part of a church that not only believes in youth, believes in their potential, but is willing to invest time and resources into our youth as well. So I'd like to invite you 
to pray, to, to pray with us, to serve with us, and to work so that we can, we can see the youth of New Mexico catch a fresh vision of Jesus because I believe he's going to do something incredible through them, and I just want to be a part of it. So message that I'm actually going to share with you tonight is one that I shared in Spectrum a few weeks ago as part of our vision series. And again, we're in 2020, so having a 2020 vision series, it's just kind of too good of an opportunity for a pun. We don't really want to just miss out on that. But every year, um, every year we have a catchphrase or something of a tagline for Spectrum. Uh, and this tagline, it kind of helps give us focus for where we're going as a ministry that year. Um, this is actually something that my predecessor, Cody Byrne, he kind of started this tradition in 2018. I'm, I'm continuing it. In 2018, our phrase was life to the full. And that's we, be, we, be, we believe that the life that Jesus offers us is not only good life, but it's the best life. We believe he offers us life to the full. In 2019, our, our catchphrase was, there is room. And the whole idea behind that was that no matter what your past is, no matter who you are, where you come from, that there is room in God's house for you. And now it's 2020. And the phrase that I believe God has laid on my heart is, the time is now. The time is now. And I believe that the harvest is plentiful, like Jesus says. So I think the time is now for us to step into God's calling over our lives. I believe that the time is now to start using our gifts and our talents the way God made us, the gifts that he entrusted to us, I believe the time is now to start using them for the sake of the kingdom. I believe the time is now to not just observe God's work. It's so easy to see what God is doing. I think the time is now to start participating in God's work. And not just with our time, but with our money, with our resources, with everything that God has given us. The time is now to get involved. The time is now to start praying fervently for revival. And beyond that, I think the time is now to just stop making excuses. I look at my life and I've made so many excuses. The time is now to stop doing that. I don't want to make excuses anymore. Like most of you, I want to have vision in my life. I want to have vision. As I walk through this life as, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, I want to see clearly where I'm going. And I believe that in order to have real vision in our lives, there's two things that we have to do. First thing is we have to see God clearly. We need to see who he is. We need to believe him. And then once we see God for who he is, we can then see ourselves more clearly. That's what we need to have vision. And once we, be, once we begin to see God clearly, we're going to start to see ourselves clearly as well. And what, what I find is we tend to get in trouble when we reverse that order, when we start to worry about finding ourselves first. And then once you find yourself, you can find God. No, we need to see God clearly first. And then seeing God clearly means that we can see ourselves more clearly. And beyond that, not only when we see God clearly, we see ourselves clearly I believe that once we do that, we will actually begin to see others more clearly as well. Um, that we need to do those first two things, and then we can see others clearly. And likewise, when we don't do that, when we have a wrong view of God, we have a wrong view of ourselves, we are going to, by nature, have a wrong view of others. And unless we are anchored in Jesus, unless we find our very identity in who he is and what he says about us, our vision of ourselves will always be off base. What we need to do is we need to view our life through the lens of the cross. And once we view our life through the lens of the cross, we will begin to view those around us through the lens of the cross as well. So if you, bribe, if you brought your Bible with you tonight, which I sure hope you did, please open it with me. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke tonight. We'll be in chapter 7. We're going to be looking at a story of somebody who walks in with one identity, meets Jesus, walks out a different person. Um, they catch a new vision of Jesus, a new vision of themselves, and we're going to see another person who doesn't. But before that, before that, I do have a question for you all. Who in here has an iPhone? 
Who in here? Okay, a lot of people have an iPhone. Okay, so you know, I'm I'm an I'm an iPhone user as well. I, I am a youth pastor, so I have to try and be trendy. Um, so I have an iPhone. Um, who in here is an Android user? Okay, well, got some, got some. So y'all are the y'all are the reasons that I have green text. I don't like that. Um, y'all are the culprits, but. <laughs> I am kidding, but I bring that up because I think as humans, we like to have exclusive clubs. We like exclusivity. We like being in exclusive clubs. We like being in a part of a group that not everybody gets to be in, to the point that even if you have an iPhone, your iPhone now tells you if you're texting somebody who doesn't have an iPhone, who doesn't have that same kind of phone. We like exclusivity. We want to live in that neighborhood. We want to work at that job. We want to work at that office. We want to be with those people and not those people. I mean, again, who doesn't like flying first class, right? More leg room, more room. We like exclusivity. And once we're part of that exclusive group, as humans, we're not super great at showing love and kindness to people who aren't in our group. So once we're part of that group, we're not super great at showing kindness to those who aren't part of our group. That's something we, we, uh, we suffer with. We like to make rules about who's in and who's out. And thankfully, praise God, that Jesus doesn't play by our rules. So real quick, let's read. Let's read. So we are going to be looking at verse 36 of chapter 7. Let's read. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar, alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answered him and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There's a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one will love him more? Simon answered and said, I would suppose the one who forgave more. He said to him, you have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who can forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So if you're taking notes tonight, I'm actually entitling tonight's message after our 2019 tagline in Spectrum, which is, there is room. I believe that one thing we can walk away from this text with is that the way we see ourselves, the way we see our own sin, the way we see ourselves before God is going to impact the way that we see others. And if we see ourselves wrongly, again, we are going to see others wrongly. If we look at ourselves, we believe that we're righteous just because we seem to be more holy than the people we sit with. By nature, we're going to look at those around us that we deem to be less holy, and we're going to look down on them. That's exactly what happens in our text tonight. And again, for the sake of context, and I love context, and clearly you love context as well. You're here on a Wednesday night. Guessed it. The Gospel of Luke was written by, of course, a man named Luke. 
Uh, we know that Luke was a doctor. We don't know a whole lot about Luke, but we know that he was a doctor. Uh, Paul calls him the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. We know that from the narrative of the book of Acts that Luke was a frequent traveling companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. Uh, they, they spent a great deal of time together. They were close friends. And Luke even accompanied Paul on his final trip to Rome in Acts 28. And that's where Luke closes his account of the book of Acts. That's where he cl closes the account of Paul's life. But as we read Luke's gospel, as we are tonight, he is not just acting as a physician here. Rather, he's acting as an investigative journalist. Uh, he is compiling something of a long-form story, a report for a very wealthy patron. You know this man. This man is named Theophilus. Now turn to your neighbor and say, Theophilus. Just did that because I like that name. There's no other reason than that. But Theophilus was his name, and that means lover of God. Now, that very well could have been his birth name, but also likely could have been a pseudonym. So maybe this was a fake name that he took on when he started following Jesus to protect his real identity. We're not entirely sure, but either way, Luke addresses both this book and the book of Acts to Theophilus. And we don't know much, but we do know that he was a wealthy Roman citizen, clearly could afford to sponsor Luke to go on this journey. It's very likely that he was a prominent member of the Roman political hierarchy of the time. And somehow this man, this Theophilus, he came to believe that Jesus was not just a strange Jewish man from Judea, but he was in fact the Messiah. He was the king. And Theophilus commissions Luke to go travel to the land of Jesus, to go study, to go talk to eyewitnesses, and to try and determine who is Jesus, what is his life story, and why, why is he so important. At this point in the story, Luke is telling us about Jesus' earlier ministry in the Galilean region. He's telling us about all the miracles that Jesus performed and did while he was there. And as you know, as is very common in, in all of the gospel accounts, Luke tells us a lot about Jesus' many interactions with a group known as the Pharisees. And I think one thing that, that when we study scripture, I think it's very easy to vilify the Pharisees. I think we have a tendency to cast them as just kind of a one-dimensional antagonist for Jesus. And while the state of the Pharisaical movement in Jesus' day was obviously bad, that's why Jesus had so many strong words for them, they didn't start out that way. Following the return from exile, the, the Pharisees actually began, their original intent was to kind of create a renewal movement within Judaism. They sought to create you know, greater holiness among the people. They, they saw just the sins of their ancestors and where their ancestors had broken the covenant. They wanted to be a force to, pro to prompt people to keep the covenant. They wanted people to keep the law. And they were very zealous for the law of God. And I think that if we were in their shoes, there's probably a lot that we could agree with. I think even looking at the Pharisees in Jesus' day, you could consider them like conservative, Bible-believing religious leaders. They were very zealous for the law of God. They knew their Bibles well. They studied scripture intently. They memorized it to an extent that none of us in this room could probably ever get to. And especially, there, there's a lot to admire about them, especially when we contrast them with the other group that was very prominent at that time, the much more liberal group known as the Sadducees. Sadducees, they, they denied the, the possibility of miracles. They denied belief in the resurrection. They only accepted the first five books of the Torah. They didn't care about any of the other books. They only accepted those as genuine. So when we compare them to the, to the Pharisees, the Pharisees, their motivations for wanting to keep the Jewish people holy and out of exile is very good, it's admirable. But most of the Pharisees by Jesus' day began to love their rules, love their tradition more than they actually loved God and loved people. And you know, Jesus says, the two most important commandments are love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love the neighbor as yourself. And these Pharisees were not super great at that. 
So where we pick up the story tonight, Jesus is having dinner at the house of one of these Pharisees. We learn that this Pharisee's name is Simon. Now, Simon, he would have been a very famous man in this village, very well-respected. He was most likely a leader of the synagogue. So everybody knew Simon. He was well-respected, well-loved. And then it's strange, this very controversial man shows up in town. His name is Rabbi Jesus, and he's performing miracles. He's healing sick people. He's casting demons out of people, people uh, that, who have had demons for years that the religious leaders could never help. Suddenly this man shows up and he can cast demons out. There, he's multiplying bread for thousands of people at once. He's, we're hearing that he's walked on water. So Simon, being an influencer type, he wants to get to know this, this man. He wants to spend some time with Jesus. He wants to see, is Jesus actually the real deal? He throws a huge dinner party at his house. If you take notes, this is our first point tonight, not on the guest list. Not on the guest list. Simon invites all of these guests to come and have dinner with Jesus. But the issue is that Simon's invite to Jesus is very disingenuous. Simon invites Jesus to dinner, but he doesn't actually welcome Jesus in, as we see. And I think, honestly, we can act the same way. I think we can invite Jesus into our lives. We'll spend time with him but never with the intention of actually allowing Jesus to speak into our lives or to say something about our lives that we don't want to hear. Simon doesn't really believe that, excuse me, that Jesus is who he says he is. I think, Jesus, I think Simon believes that possibly he's a prophet, maybe, I don't know. But either way, he does not believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. So he, he really just invites Jesus over, I think, to be entertained. I think he's trying to flex on Jesus. He's trying to let Jesus know, hey, I don't know what towns you've been to, but in this town, I'm the spiritual authority. I don't care who you are. I'm the spiritual authority. He wants Jesus to know who, who's the boss. But then something happens. Something very, very interesting happens, and an uninvited guest shows up to this dinner party. It's this woman. And what's important to note before we really dive in is that this account in Luke 7 that we're reading tonight is most likely not the same account that we see in Matthew 26 and John 12. Uh, that would appear to be a different account where Mary in Bethany anoints Jesus' feet. They do both appear to happen at the house of a man named Simon, but this account happens much earlier in Jesus' earthly ministry while he's in Galilee. The other account happens uh, later at the very end of Jesus' ministry. There's two separate events. We don't know her name, but what we do know is that she's a sinner. And the, the word used here that she was a sinner most likely seems to indicate that she was a prostitute. The, the Greek word that's used here is hamartolos. And when that, that, when that word is generally used in the New Testament, it indicates not just somebody who is a sinner. We all agree we're all sinners. But when this word is used, it's usually meant to indicate this person is not just a sinner, but somebody who lives a life devoted to sin. So in this context, it seems most likely to assume that she was a prostitute. She was a woman of the streets. And you know, we don't know her name, but we do know that she had a past. She had a rough past. Her occupation was to night after night to sell her body to the highest bidder. She was not living a righteous life in any sense of the word. She had spent her entire life being used, abused, neglected, abandoned, over and over and over by the men of this village. Everybody knew who she was. She had quite the reputation. Well-deserved one. Excuse me. Some scholars suggest that she had previously encountered Jesus and that as a result of this message that perhaps when she was hearing him preach that she... She took that, she realized she needed to change her life, she repented, and that's why she goes to this dinner party, but no matter whether she met Jesus prior to this evening or not, she arrives as an uninvited guest. 
and in Jesus' time, especially at a very large dinner party of this sort, it would not be uncommon to have uninvited guests show up to a dinner party. This was entertainment back then. Here you have two very well-respected, controversial, perhaps, rabbis in town. No doubt they're going to talk. They're going to debate. So this was, a, this was entertainment for the people of this village. They may not have been invited to the dinner, but they could have at least showed up and gathered around the room and listened. However, this woman would never have been allowed in this, this room. She would never have been on the guest list. Nobody in this, in this room wanted her to be there. She knew that. And yet she arrives, and we're told that she brings something with her. She doesn't arrive empty-handed. She has with her a small jar. We're told that it's an alabaster jar. An alabaster was something of a translucent stone. So think almost like a small glass jar. This jar would have had perfume in it, a very expensive perfume. Most likely, this perfume was the most expensive thing that she owned. It's the most valuable thing that she owned. Perhaps she uses perfume every night as she was walking the streets. We don't know. Either way, she shows up with this perfume. And what we do know is that she enters the room and she stands at Jesus' feet. And I think some of us, especially being raised looking at Da Vinci's The Last Supper, we tend to think that they were all sitting at a table just with chairs like you and I would. But in that culture, that's not really how they would have dinner. So they would have had a very low-level table. All the guests would be surrounding it, be kind of leaning on their left arm. They'd be eating with their right arm. And their feet would be stretched out behind them. And that's how, G- that's how this, this woman is able to approach Jesus and stand at, at her feet. We always have to kind of work to counteract that cultural disconnect. A lot of times the paintings, the Bible movies that we see aren't very accurate. So that's how they would have been eating. She does something very, very interesting. She kneels down, she opens the jar, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet. To us, that's weird, right? Again, cultural disconnect. Please don't ever pour oil on my feet. Um, I don't find that welcoming or... Um, respectful, but what seems odd, what seems strange to us in that culture, that was a deeply respectful act. That was, a, that was an act of high honor that she was showing Jesus. She's a woman with her reputation. Everybody knew who this woman was. It was a well-deserved reputation. It was not a good reputation. And yet, she still comes in. She boldly anoints Jesus' feet in front of everybody. I think it takes a special courage to stand in front of people who you know despise you. But she's courageous enough to still do that because she was that bold because she realized that there was room at Jesus' feet for her, even if nobody at the party made room for her. She knew that wherever Jesus was, there was going to be room for her too. She knew her own, her own sin. She knew her own past. And she's weeping because she's brokenhearted. She's repentant over her sin. She realizes that what Jesus is offering is so much better than the way that she's lived her life up to this point. And as this very awkward incident unfolds, uh, the, the text uh, in the original Greek seems to indicate that she carried on doing this for a while. So this was an awkward interruption to the dinner party. Nobody can, nobody can disagree with that. We're treated to the inner thoughts of Simon the Pharisee. Read with me in verse 39. Now when he, the, the Simon the Pharisee, who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now Simon unlike this woman, is a coward. He's a coward. She boldly comes into this room to be with Jesus, even though she knows nobody in that room wants her to be there. Simon, being just the, the, that he places that religious mask that I think a lot of us can be good at. We, we show one thing on our face, but we're thinking something else. He's looking at this event unfold. He's thinking to himself, thinking quietly to himself, and he can't even begin to bring to speak this publicly. He won't even speak this publicly 
All he is is he's just thinking this in his head. Simon thinks that he's the moral authority in the room. He really does. He thinks that he's the moral authority in the room. He thinks that he is righteous enough to judge the character of others. He believes that he's righteous enough. He, he thinks that just because he follows the law, that he's a respected Bible teacher, that he, he has the, the, the righteous character to judge others. He judges Jesus, and he, he believes that clearly Jesus is either clueless because he doesn't know what kind of woman this is, or he's immoral. He does know what kind of woman this is, but either way, how could he be a prophet? Because a prophet would never let a woman like this touch him. And Simon goes on to judge not only Jesus' character, but he judges the woman. He believes that her past, whatever she did in her past, is not only her past, it's her identity in the future. He believes that this woman's past is her identity in the present. And I think, if we're honest, I think we can judge people that same way. We sometimes believe that people who have made mistakes in the past will always be defined by those mistakes. Thank goodness, again, that Jesus does not treat us the way that we sometimes will treat each other. Amen? But unlike what Simon thinks, Jesus is not only a prophet. He's wrong on that one. He is a prophet. He's also the son of God in human flesh. So he pulls a Professor X. He reads, he reads Simon's thoughts. <laughs> Read with me, starting in verse 40. This is Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. It's a scary thing. If Jesus ever looks at you and sees what you're thinking, he says, I've got something to say to you. That's a scary thing. So he says, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I would suppose the one with whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. That's our second point tonight. Differently indebted, equally insolvent. Differently indebted, equally insolvent. Jesus tells Simon a very short parable. We know Jesus. He's a storyteller. He likes to, to tell stories, likes to share parables. Normally, they're much longer than this. This is only a few sentences, but it gets the point across. In Jesus' parable, there is a money lender. This money lender lends uh, money to two men. One, he lends 50 denarii. The other, he lends 500 denarii. And if that number doesn't really mean a whole lot to you now, um, a, denar- a denarius was essentially a one day's wage in that, in that day. So if we do some quick math, which I know is everybody's favorite subject, it is not mine, um, 50 denarii comes out to roughly $10,000. 500 denarii would probably be closer to about $100,000 in today's money, give or take. Either way, both of these people, they borrowed a lot of money, and neither of them could pay back their loans. And, and think of it as though this first person, $10,000, maybe they're defaulting on, a, on an auto loan, but this person, the second person, $100,000, that's a chunk of change. They're defaulting on their mortgage, maybe. But in this, in this parable, the moneylender forgives both of them. He looks at them, you know, they tell him, you know, I, I can't pay back this. And he's like, you know, that's fine. No worries. You're good. Take it easy. Um, he tells him it's okay. And so Jesus asked Simon, in light of that, which one do you think is going to love the, the money lender more, the person who had the bigger or smaller debt. And Simon's like, duh, of course, the one who was forgiven the $100,000, that's a lot of money. Can't really ever pay that back. Jesus agrees with him. But, but the thing is, both of these people were bankrupt. Yes, even if one person owed less on paper numerically, they were both equally unable to pay back their debt to this man. So either way, both of these people should have understood that they were completely bankrupt unless this money lender came and bailed them out. So what he did. But obviously the person who owed $100,000 would be much more thankful for being forgiven of the debt, right? 
And this person knew full well that his debt was far too high to ever repay. He could never repay that. So it would have meant much more to be forgiven of that debt than compared to the $10,000. But if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that without God, though we may not be physically bankrupt, monetarily bankrupt, we are spiritually bankrupt if we don't have God. And if we see our sin is not that big a deal, if we minimize our own sin, we're not going to be that thankful when we're forgiven. Because I mean, think about it. Forgiveness doesn't mean much if you don't think you've done anything worth forgiving. So if somebody, you don't think you've wronged them and they're just like, I forgive you, just like, I don't care. I didn't do anything wrong. Unless you have an honest view of yourself and your own sin, you're going to look at the, at the sin of others the wrong way too. When we minimize our own sin, we tend to maximize the sin of others. When you look at, when you look at your own sin, you try to make it seem insignificant. We have a tendency to then magnify the sin of somebody else because then we don't feel as bad. Well, I'm not as big of a sin as they are, so it's not that big a deal. Yeah, it's okay, I'm still in sin, but not doing what they're doing, so that's not a problem. And I think that's what Simon is doing here. He thinks that because he isn't a prostitute like this woman, he doesn't have a debt with God. He thinks that he's righteous enough not just to, to judge himself, he can judge her character. And I'm, I'm sure he's probably emphasizing her sin and making little of his own, probably to make himself feel better. Because we all know Simon is just as guilty as she was, maybe not of being a prostitute, but he had his own sins. But making her sins seem bigger, making a big deal out of her sins made him feel better about his own. And if you're still taking notes tonight, this is our third point. Do you see her? And after Jesus shares this short parable, it says that he turns towards the woman. He turns towards the woman. And even though he's looking at the woman, he's talking to Simon who's over here. I think it's almost as though Jesus is treating Simon the way Simon has always treated this woman. Jesus is looking at this woman but talking to Simon. This woman is probably very used to being talked about but never talked to. People like Simon would always refuse to look at her and cover their eyes. And even if she was in the room, they'd talk about her but never to her. And especially a respected rabbi like Simon, he wouldn't associate with this woman. A rabbi like Simon, you would never associate with a woman of this kind. So he never would have talked to her. He never would have acknowledged her in any way, shape, or form. But instead, Jesus looks straight at her, and he acknowledges her. He acknowledges her. Maybe for the first time in a very long time, here's Jesus, a religious leader, looking at this woman who's been ignored for so long, and he looks at her. Everybody else in the room is really good at just ignoring her. She's there. She probably wants attention. She wants to talk to people, but everybody in this room is too, quote-unquote, holy to give her any time. So Jesus looks at this woman, he acknowledges her, he sees her. In his culture, even doing this would have been very controversial. This would have been very controversial. As we know, in this, in this world, it was very male-driven, it was a very patriarchal society. And, and there was many men in Jesus' day who just felt that, that women just simply didn't matter. Women didn't have value in their eyes. Women were viewed as something, a level of property in their eyes. They just believe that women should be invisible. But here, flaunting the, the cultural norms of his day, Jesus not only looks at this woman, he sees her, but he also acknowledges her. He calls attention to her, gives her a platform. Can I just say this? Jesus respects women. He, Jesus honors women. And Jesus elevated the social status of women when he was here on this earth. So if you're like me, you're a, a man in this room and you want to be like Jesus, we want to be like Jesus, we need to respect women. We need to honor women. We need to protect women. Jesus respects and honors women. 
So that's something we need to do as well. We must do the same. So Jesus asked Simon, the flexing, the self-righteous Pharisee, he's asking, do you see this woman? Of course, Jesus is not questioning Simon's eyesight. He's not asking, are you blind? Do you not see her? Everybody in that room saw her. Again, this was quite, a, quite an interruption. Everybody was well aware of, of who this woman was. Jesus is not asking Simon and the rest of the dinner guests, are you visibly aware that she's here? Rather, Jesus is questioning Simon's discernment. Simon thought that he saw her. Simon thought that he saw her. Simon thought that he knew everything that he could ever possibly need to know about this woman. He believes that he's holy, that he's righteous enough to judge her character. And Simon thinks that he sees this woman for who she truly is. So the rest of the dinner guests, they, they, they know this woman. She's had a reputation. They think that's all we need to know. She's a lost cause. She's scum. She shouldn't be in this dinner party. She's polluting it. That's what everybody thought about her. But Jesus proves to be the only one who actually sees her. He's the only one who actually sees her. And I think a lot of us can look at people the same way that Simon did. I think we can. If we're really honest with ourselves, I know that I am so guilty of this. I'm so guilty of this. We would rather judge a person based on their past rather than, than who they are in the present. We'd rather judge someone based on their past, on the mistakes that they've made, rather than who they are right now, even if they have a new identity in Jesus like we do. So ask yourself tonight. I think one thing that we need to do is we need to be very honest with ourselves in light of Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, do we judge people for who they are? Do we judge people believing that they are made in the image of God, that they have inherent dignity and worth and value? Do we see people the way Jesus sees people? Or do we have a tendency, rather, to see people the way we assume them to be? Do we judge people for not who they are and who they are in Jesus, who they are as an image bearer of God? Do we judge them for who we assume them to be? Maybe because of what their past is. We know about their past. You know, we've lovingly spread those gossip that we just call prayer requests. We tell, them about, we tell other people about their reputation. Everybody knows about their reputation. But do we judge people based on their reputation or on who they are now in the present based on what God says about them. Jesus, looking at this woman, he, he acknowledges her. He accepts her. And you see, by pouring this expensive oil on Jesus' feet, she is declaring for the whole world to see that she belongs to Jesus now. This was the most costly possession that she owned, probably several years' worth of wages. This was very costly. So it wasn't just, you know cheap Walmart perfume. This was costly. This cost her something. She opens up the whole bottle and she pours it all over Jesus' feet. She is telling everybody in the room for all to see. I know that all of you know what I've done. I know that all of you know what my past is. I don't have secrets in this town. She's telling everybody in this room that she's a follower of Jesus now. She's letting go of her past, and she is embracing this new life that Jesus is offering. She's seen, she's heard about the miracles that Jesus is doing, and she realizes, we don't know when she meets Jesus, but at some point she realizes what he is offering is so much better than the way that I'm living my life right now. That's what she realizes. She wasn't saved because she anointed Jesus. Of course not. She is saved simply because she understood that she was, in a, she was in a bad place, that she was a sinner, she was hopeless. Then she hears about Jesus. 
She believes that he is her only hope for a fresh start and a, a new life, a new future. You don't have to bring Jesus a gift for him to forgive you. You don't have to bring him a gift. All you have to do is you need to bring your brokenness to him because that's all you have. It's not about the gift that you bring Jesus because if we're being honest at the end of the day, there is nothing that we have that we can't even bring to Jesus that suffices to cover our debt. Like the two men in these parables, we are completely and utterly and entirely bankrupt. It's not about the gift. It's about the, gift, the, the heart behind the gift. And let me show you something. Um, so some of you know that I have three children. Uh, my oldest, Leland, he is three and a half. Uh, John, he is two. And then Everly, my six-month-old, she is so incredible. Um, she's a little bit sick right now. She's getting over a cold. But Leland, my oldest, if you know him, you'll know he's, he's very quiet. He can be a little bit shy, but he is one of the sweetest, most tender-hearted, most loving human being on this planet. He's so thoughtful. One day, Leland gave me this rock. Gave me this rock. And I'm going to be honest, there's nothing special about this rock. It's beige. I mean, there's not really any coloring on it. It's kind of flat. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing cool about it. It's not like when you pick up a rock, you're like, whoa, this is awesome. Like, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a rock. There's nothing outwardly special about this. This is extremely plain. Nothing pretty about this rock at all. But with that, I keep this rock in my desk and I look at it every day. And the reason I do that is not because it's pretty, not because this rock has any value in and of itself. I couldn't sell this for anything. It's a rock. It is a, and not only that, it's kind of a boring rock, let's be honest. I keep this rock on my desk and I look at it and it has value to me because my son is the one who gave it to me. My son saw this rock. To him, this rock was the best thing in the entire world. Again, he's at that age, that really cool age where like he's three Anything, any rock is just the coolest invention ever. So he picked it up, really excited, and gave it to me. It's not even like he went on a long journey or he bought this with his money that he does not have. He didn't do any of that. He probably found this rock outside my office. It's probably a rock that I've walked past a million times. But something in him in that moment said, oh, I like that rock. That's a cool rock. So he picked it up, brought it into my office. And then at some point, he just said, Dad, I want you to have this. Gave me this rock, which again, has no value in and of itself. But it has value because my son gave it to me. It has value because of the value of the one who gave it to me. So he could have, he could have given me a, I don't know, a paper clip. It would have meant the same thing because it's my son. He thought this was cool. Whether you and I might think this is cool, he thought this was cool. So he gave it to me. He gave it to me because he wanted me to think of him. He wanted me to, to remember that he loves me. So that's why I keep it. That's why I keep it in my desk. That's why I look at it every day. That's why it has so much value to me. It's never about the gift. It's not about the gift. It's about the, it's about the giver. It's about the heart behind the gift, not the gift itself. This woman, she brought her very, very best for Jesus. Because she knew that God had done so much for her. Simon, on the other hand, couldn't even be bothered to show him common courtesy. Jesus contrasts the hospitality of this woman with Simon's complete lack thereof. Jesus said that Simon never even offered to have his feet washed. And again, in this culture, this Near Eastern culture, you're walking around in sandals every day. There's dusty roads. Your feet are going to get kind of nasty. And so it's a common courtesy. You wash your feet. You don't want nasty feet walking all over your carpet. So it's a common courtesy. You would either, if you were wealthier, you would have a servant come and wash 
wash the, your, the, the feet of your guests. Probably a great experience, but if you weren't even that wealthy, you would still provide a basin filled with water and a towel so that they could wash their own feet. This was basic, common courtesy. You don't want your guests to walk in with dirty feet. This was like the bare minimum. Simon doesn't even offer that. Jesus also goes on to say, you didn't anoint my hair with oil, which again, that was a common practice back in. Remember, there wasn't much deodorant back then, so you'd anoint someone with fragrant oil, it would smell nicer. But again, Jesus then chides him, you didn't even offer me a kiss. And again, I'm thinking, I, I never want to walk into a house and have the host kiss me. Thank you. But back then again, in Near Eastern cultures, it's still a common custom to, to offer your, your, your guests a kiss on both cheeks. And again, we're, we're obviously a little bit more squeamish about those kind of things in America. But while we no longer kiss our guests, praise God, we do shake hands. We do shake hands. So think about it in today's culture. Simon invites Jesus into his house. Everybody's excited. Simon is sitting there greeting all the guests. Jesus comes in. He, he offers his hand to shake, to shake Simon's. And Simon's like, he snubs him. And that's exactly what happened here. Yes, there's that cultural disconnect, but that's what happened. Simon snubbed Jesus in a very obvious and an incredible way. It was noticeable. Jesus is essentially saying... You invited me into your house, but you never actually welcomed me. You brought me in, but you didn't actually welcome me as a guest. And like that, we can invite Jesus into the house of our lives. We can invite Jesus into our hearts, but we don't ever, we don't actually have to make him welcome if we don't want to. While we may not wash feet in our culture, again, thank God, um, we still have lots of ways to make Jesus feel unwelcome in our lives, in our hearts. And we can come to church every week. Again, we have such an incredible church that we are a part of. You can come to church multiple times a week. You can read your Bible every day, morning, noon, and night. You can join a connect group. All three of those things are incredible, and you should absolutely do them. But just because you do them does not actually mean that you're welcoming Jesus into your life. Because when you welcome Jesus into your life, you have to welcome the things that Jesus says about your life. And sometimes what Jesus says about our lives isn't great. Sometimes what Jesus says about our lives isn't something that makes us happy. And if we, if we, have a, if we worship a Jesus who never says something that we don't like about our, the way we're living our lives, we're probably not worshiping Jesus. We have to welcome Jesus not only into our lives, but we have to welcome what he says about our lives, and we need to accept that. And what he says about our lives may hurt, but it's always good. It's always for the best. So we can either choose to simply leave Jesus as a house guest, as Simon does in his story. We can choose to leave him as a house guest. We can choose to welcome him in to stay and realize that things that maybe Jesus is going to reorder in our hearts, it's better that way. We'll welcome him in. That's our last point. Last point, if you're still taking notes. Go in peace. Go in peace. Read with me the last few verses of this chapter. We're going to start in verse 47. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Therefore, Jesus is saying, in light of this woman's repentance, she's been forgiven. 
She realized her need for grace. She was willing to walk away from her old life. Therefore, she is forgiven. And the way that the verse is translated in the New King James Version, it almost sounds as though like she's forgiven because she showed love to Jesus. And obviously, we know that's not the case. I think the NIV has a slightly clearer rendering. It says this, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. So obviously, the fact that she is forgiven, that was not contingent upon the fact that she showed Jesus love and anointed him. Her motivation for doing that, her motivation for showing her love to Jesus in that way was because she had been forgiven. Jesus is not ignoring her past. He's not ignoring her past. He's not sweeping her sin under the rug and just like, no, 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 you're fine, you're good, you're good. Shh, shh, shh. It's not what he's doing. You see, grace, God's grace does not ignore our past. Grace actually says, in spite of your past, in spite of every little thing that you have ever done, I'm still going to forgive you. I'm still going to forgive you. Grace does not ignore sin. It says, in spite of your sin, I still want to forgive you. Jesus loved this woman when she was at her very most unlovable. Perhaps the time that, she, that he met her, she was, she was walking the streets. I don't know if he was preaching, whatever that might have looked like. We don't know. But Jesus loved this woman at her most unlovable. And Jesus is saying that she loves much. She's demonstrating such incredible love because she's been forgiven of much. She loves Jesus with all of her heart because she understands what she's been forgiven of. She understands the debt that she had. She is the debtor in that story who had that debt that she can never repay. She is fully aware of that. She knows everything that she's ever done. And whether she got into this lifestyle or not by her choice, she, this, she knew what, this was wrong. She knew what she did day in, day out was wrong. She knew that that was against the law of God. She knew that how unhappy she was. And yet when she met Jesus, she's forgiven. She understands that that massive debt has been forgiven. Because she has been forgiven much, she's willing to love much. But unlike her, Simon doesn't love much, maybe if at all, because he doesn't think he's done anything worthy of forgiveness. Again, he places himself in, the, in this, this position of spiritual authority and he considers that, you know, if, if he's, he considers himself to be better than others. He looks down on everybody else in the room. If we consider ourselves to be better than others, we're going to love others little as well. And if we struggle to love others, it's probably because we don't understand how unlovable we are. Maybe you're struggling to love that person. You feel like you love everybody else, but there's that one person. You're thinking of that one person is like, I'm not going to love him. We need to realize that Jesus' love for that person is no less scandalous than his love for you. The love that he has for that person that you don't want to love, that I don't want to love, the love that he has for them is no less scandalous than the way he loves me. This woman's sins were forgiven. They were washed clean. She had quite a few of them. She had quite the bill that she got. It had lots of sins on it. It was washed clean. She was forgiven. She left this dinner party with a new start. She left this dinner party with a new identity. That's something only Jesus can offer is a new identity. Yes, you can change behavior, but only Jesus can offer you a new identity. He's offering her life change. And maybe you're in here too, and you are like this woman. I don't know what you've done. 
but you want to be forgiven too. And if Jesus can forgive her, and she had quite a multitude of sins from what the Bible tells us, if Jesus can forgive her, if Jesus can forgive me, Jesus can forgive me, he can forgive you too. Again, I don't know what you've done. I don't know your past. I don't know your story. I don't know your present. But if Jesus can forgive her, if, she can, if he can forgive me, he can absolutely forgive you that I believe. Jesus' love for you is so extravagant that not only does he love you, but it says he was willing to lay down his very life just so he can save you. He's willing to lay down his life so you don't have to do the same. And all you have to do, all you have to do is to bring your brokenness to Jesus. Because that, at the end of the day, is all you have. There's no gift that you have that is ever going to make up for your debt. All you have is to take the brokenness of your life, take it to Jesus and say, here you go, that's all I got. But I believe that you have a new start for me. We bring our brokenness to him because we believe that there is room at his feet. So you see the other guests at the, the dinner party, they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They were looking at, looking at him. How dare he forgive her? He doesn't know what she's done. Who is, he? who is this man? Who is this strange man who rolls into town forgiving the sins of, of prostitutes? No doubt, I'm sure they're looking at her. They've known her maybe their whole lives, and they're saying, she is too far gone. She is too far gone. She's probably done too much. Maybe some of them are looking at her just like, I doubt God even loves her anymore. And like Simon, their host, they believe that they had this moral authority, this moral superiority that they could judge her character. So when Jesus crosses outside their boundaries that they drew around who's in and who's out, they get upset. And sometimes I think that us as religious people, sometimes we're really good at doing that too. We build walls around people who are in. We want to keep out the people who we don't think should be in with us. What's incredible is that Jesus loves to tear down these walls. He loves to tear down the walls that we build up around people that aren't scriptural. It's just our own preferences. Jesus tears down the walls of our hypocrisy so he can welcome more people into his kingdom. We know that there is room at the feet of Jesus for everyone. We know that. The question is, are we going to make room at the table for those people who show up? There is room at ev- there is room for everybody at Jesus' feet. But are you and I, are we going to make room for them in our hearts when they show up? When, when hurting people show up who need Jesus like this woman, are we going to try and turn her away like this dinner crowd I'm sure wanted to? Are we going to turn them away or are we going to make room for them in our hearts because we know that Jesus made room for us? And if Jesus made room for us, everything we've done, we believe that he will make room for them too. So what do we do when these people show up? Jesus sent this woman out. She had a new future. She had a new identity, a new hope. She came into this dinner party with a guilty conscience. Again, she, had, she was a sinner. She had made many mistakes. And yet after Jesus, she leaves with forgiveness. She leaves with peace. And if you're here, and perhaps you have a past that you would rather forget about. You would rather not think about all the things that you've done. You're like this woman. Maybe you're filled with the same level of regret and shame, maybe even more. Again, I don't know what you've done. You don't know what I've done. If you're filled with regret, filled with shame, that is not the life that God wants for you. That is not the life that he has for you. So bring your brokenness to Jesus. Bring it to him because there is room for you too. There's not a, there's not a, a, a fire code for how many people can f- sit at Jesus' feet. There's room for everyone. There's room for everyone. There's room for me. There's room for you.
Jesus tells this woman to go in peace. We think, okay, that's just, he's just saying peace? No. He would have been saying shalom. He's, he, the, the, the last word that we see him speaking over this woman's life is peace. A life that has been defined by chaos, a life that has been defined by sin, a life that's been defined by hurt. The last word Jesus speaks over her is peace. You have peace. You have peace with God. You can have that same peace, that same hope that she received. She had a past, so do you, so do I. But through Jesus, we can have that same peace. And if you're in here, and maybe, maybe it's not so much that you're not guilty, you realize full well your past, but maybe you're also very guilty of not loving those around you well. Maybe you, maybe, you, maybe like me, have a tendency to judge other people for what we see on the outside. We'd rather judge them for what we think they've done rather than how Jesus sees them. The good news is there's grace for that too. There's grace for that too. There's peace. You can have peace. You can have that same shalom with God too. And then what's even better is you can then take that peace, you can give it to those around you. Because forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. And people who have peace, people who have and understand the peace that they have with God are going to naturally want to give peace to those around them. We can all have peace. We can all have forgiveness. doesn't matter what you've done. But because of Jesus, because of Jesus, there is room for you. There is room for me because of Jesus. And we believe that not only is there room for you and I, there is room for everyone. Because our whole world needs to hear this message, amen? Amen. Our whole world needs to have a new identity, a new hope, a new start. There's not just room for us here, there's room for everyone. There's room for everybody at the feet of Jesus. So let's make sure we're sharing it. Let's not be these religious leaders. Let's not be them where we just sit in our room. We look at the hurt of this world We'd rather just kind of keep that peace to ourselves. No. When we have peace, we need to share peace. Because our world does not have peace. You have to turn on the news for three seconds to figure that out. So let's, let's leave this room tonight. Let's leave our, our whatever, whatever we're going through. Let's leave that and realize that we have peace with God. We need to go share that peace with others. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this, this evening that we get to share together. We get to hear your word. We believe that there is room for us, no matter what we have done, that you love us. You want a new future for us, a new identity. All we have to do is accept that. We thank you so much for our, your grace that you give us, that even when we have sinned so much that you love us even more. Thank you for your scandalous love for us. And help us not just to keep that love for ourselves, but to share it, to share that peace with those around us, because we know that you love them just as much as you love us. Use his name. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.